that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm John Viola, along with my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B., the Italian-American Wikipedia himself, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle, and geared up for a very interesting episode. Uh, This is going to be a really fun conversation with two authors behind a very interesting new book and yet another hidden chapter of Italian-American history that is uh, finally coming to light. And this is a book that, believe it or not, I was really thrilled popped up on my Amazon recommendations, just seemed right up my alley, and proved to me that if you buy enough of this stuff, these algorithms start to search for you. So I was really happy to see it and excited to be able to get the authors to join us today. And Pat, I think this is an area that you're going to enjoy because it's really early immigration history, which I know is a focus and a passion for you. I think it's the most neglected part of our story. Yeah, I think you're right. You and I talk a lot about trying to find those proto-immigrants in different places uh, before the mass migration. And the, I think the it, five points of Manhattan in 1868, that's where I would love to have seen. Wow. In 1872, because there was already enough of Italians there by the late 1870s that they had blocks. There's a book that came out in the 40s. I think it was by Giovanni Schiavo. Yeah, I believe it's Schiavo. It's called Italian Americans Before the Civil War. And he's done some really interesting stuff about the real early immigration. And then he spent a good portion of his career writing about the Italian-Americans before the great wave of migration, you know, in 1890, when the numbers really start to pick up. You forget that these people were coming here before the unification of Italy, and it ties into all that. So I think it's a really interesting topic for us. Why don't we get him on the show? Oh, no, he wrote in the 40s. He's long dead. We know so many people, yet I could not name one person who's an expert in that period. Yeah. Say 1848 to 1860. If you're out there, call us. Yeah, please. If you, this is your expertise, we would love to talk about it. And I think the two gentlemen that we're going to have on in a minute have certainly earned their stripes on this era of Italian immigration, early Italian immigration. And for us, you know, it ties into something we're both passionate about, which is the sort of more modern take on the exploration of the unification of Italy, because this is all directly related to life in Southern Italy post-unification and the sort of switch in immigrant numbers. Unification is not the right word. It was a military invasion by an occupied force. (laughs) That's very true. Yeah, I want to destroy that term. There's no term I hate like resurgimento, unification. Unification to me is okay. Reunification I have a problem with. We were never united. The Romans treated the outer provinces still like outer provinces. Absolutely. If we, if we want to talk about any mentality of Obayes, it was the Romans. Yeah. They've never been united. From the, to this day, they've had maybe maybe three or four hours of unity <laughs> the whole history put together. And it usually was based around soccer games <laughs> for maybe 15 or 20 minutes. That's true. The big tournaments. Olympic, <laughs> you know, you know, like uh, you know, Alberto Pomba. <laughs> the uh, skier in the, in the 80s and stuff like that. They had a few sports-related victories that you could say they were for a, a, a time it took you to drink a cup of coffee United, and that's it. <laughs> that's, just my, that's just me. What do you want me to tell you? Well, let's turn the clock back to the era before and shortly after the political amalgamation of the Italic states, maybe that's the way to say it, the pre-unitary states, and uh, invite on two guests who have done an incredible job with this new book. It's called Italians Swindled to New York, 
false promises at the dawn of immigration. And I'm very pleased to welcome two gentlemen, proud Italian Americans, both from Youngstown, Ohio, as I understand it. I love Ohio. I know you do. And you're if, gonna... I, if I ever have to go into exile, I'm going to Ohio. <laughs> it's, it's like a, it's like a happy go lucky, positive version of New Jersey, New Jersey without the anger. <laughs> I know you do. You do love Ohio. I keep thinking you're going to move out there at some I, I, point. They're all nice people. You can't say a bad. I mean, I have, you know, I have very dear friends, the Fidelis and you know, I love Ohio. I love Ohio. The great Gabriella is from Ohio. Here's two more great Italian-Americans from Ohio to welcome to the show. <laughs> Joe Tuturon and Ben Larisha. Welcome to the Italian-American podcast. Really happy to have you guys on. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having us. And uh, with uh, our great love for Ohio, am I correct? You're both from Youngstown? You both grew up in Youngstown? That's correct. Yes. Great center of Italian-American life. Mm-hmm. That's like Cafaro stand. Yeah, our friends the Cafaros are definitely that's, uh, that, that's, oh, yeah. that's Cafaros. Yeah. That's the that's the that's the Cafaro homeland. Yes, it yeah. sure, sure is. They they're still out there. All of them. They're big extended family. That's true. Yes, that's also the home of uh, the Mall King. What's his name, Ben? De Bartolo. De yeah, Bartolo. Yeah, owner of the 49ers. That's right. Went on yeah. to have the San Francisco 49ers and uh, right. the father, I guess, Eddie De Bartolo, senior. Very active in the Italian American Sports Hall of Fame. If I had been Pennsylvania, I would have annexed Youngstown. (laughs) (laughs) Just over the state line, yeah. Right over the state line. Aliquippa's up there, too, also, isn't it? That's out of our cultural area, I'd say. Oh, wow, that's a strong comment. Yeah, we we got this cultural area that's defined by the cookie table. You know cookie tables? That is particularly yours. Yes. But I have a, I could do a whole episode on what I think the historical evolution is of the cookie table and the Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio kind of obsession with it or or ties with it. You want my theory on it? Go ahead. My theory is this. I found this in Youngstown. I was at the Mount Carmel Feast in Youngstown. Oh, yeah. And I found a woman who was making a sweet gazon stuffed with chickpeas. Mm. And I almost fell out of my chair. I was like, if this is an Italian-American anthropological gold, I don't know what is. <laughs> because any of those fried desserts, they all were so popular in the 18, you know, the mid-19th centuries because stoves were unpredictable. Yeah. Because they really weren't stoves. So you cooked everything in an oven that was 800 degrees because it was a bread oven, right? So you didn't have a leavening agent. The leavening agent was egg whites, right? Which is like a genoise, like a pan de spagna, which is a headache to deal with. And the south of Italy was all about fried confections. Uh-huh. So really poor parts of Calabria, even parts of Basilicata, Southern Campania, they would mash chickpeas and sweeten mashed boiled chickpeas and stuff these gazons with it and serve it as a dessert. But that is like anthropologically, that's like the 1850s. And I found them still being made in Youngstown, Ohio. Because see, I found, if you go to the New York, New Jersey area, we have a pasticceria pastry culture, which you don't have out there. You, you say you have Italian bakeries, but... We don't have spogliatella. Yeah, well, because you didn't have people from Campania. New Jersey's all Naples. But if you take those cookie tables, they were the wedding favorites because the Italian weddings of the 19th century all they were were liquor and cookies and the wedding cake does not become popular to after the war uh-huh. so be- before the war you had big mountains of cookies with the bride and groom on top if you went to the south of italy a wedding in the south of italy was 
the bride and groom got married in the morning and it was a very uh, more likely than not that the bride's mother was not there, if not the bride's whole family because they were home cooking. It wasn't a big solemn mass. All they did was have a simple wedding ceremony, sometimes maybe in front of a chapel in the church of some patron saint they were dedicated to if it was not at the main altar. They would go home. The mother's family would provide a lunch for maybe 14 or 15 people. I mean, how many can you fit into a house and feed at that time? And then in the evening, they'd have musicians, they'd have alcohol, cordials, and cookies because you can bake a hard Italian cookie in a bread oven. And everybody made cookies. So you were the aunt of the bride, you made a bushel of cookies. You were the cousin of the bride, you made a bushel of cookies. You're the godmother of the bride, you made three bushels of cookies. So that's where all that cookie tradition came from, was just a massive community outpouring of cookies. That's the way it is in Youngstown. Still. Yes, and you are you are fossilized, that you are amber. That's why I love so much about Ohio is that there's, because what happened was part of the Rust Belt, because your, your economic troubles began after the war, when people were leaving Italy, the second wave after the war, when New Jersey got a huge amount, New Jersey got people into the 70s or 80s, a lot of parts of West Virginia, Ohio, you did not get any immigration after World War I. So you really, your Italian traditions are very fossilized. So even ignorant people from Italy will go to places like Ohio, West Virginia, say, oh, this is not Italian. No, this is Italian. It's just 150 years ago. And you're too stupid and ignorant. My relatives went to Canada. My relatives went to Canada in the 60s. Oh, really? Where were they from in Italy? Um, Molise, Abruzzi, Molise, small towns. That's why Ohio was no trouble, because Abruzzo was no problem. (laughs) Nice people. (laughs) John's wife's Abruzzese. They're no trouble. That's why Cleveland is like calm, nice people. Yeah, that's true. Because the happy mountain people. <laughs> yeah. Molise, I think Molise has the lowest rate of mafia of any region of, in Italy. That's including the north. And it has the least, it has the least amount of political corruption, mafia corruption, and actual inquinamento, which I guess would be like... Uh, pollution. 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 That is the key to Ohio's success. You're all Molisana Abruzzese people. You see, but you see what happens. I go off on these tangents. <laughs> They're good tangents. Are they good? I just go off. They're fun. This is what the show's about. Fun tangents. Because but now, I... stop, stop. Now I got the wooly for the cookies. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do stuff. Please, if you ever come on again, don't go talking about cookies if I don't have the cookies. Because <laughs> now I'm going to be on the internet daydreaming about cookies. <laughs> I have to have it ready. If you're going to bring it up, I got to have it within like the wooly grab zone. on the desk or you're going to mention some cookie you can only get in Youngstown that I'm going to be off the side I got to go to Youngstown to get this cookie you can't do I'm like a dog with this stuff it's worth Uh, the trip or more like a nine-year-old I don't know which (laughs) what's more of an indictment (laughs) we've added Greek cookies to the uh, repertoire oh I love Greek cookies (laughs) Greeks are good with cookies I think that's where we get it from you know the ones they twist at Easter with the orange juice I don't know if I've ever had a Greek cookie. Oh, I love Greek cookies. They make strusses on steroids. They have like a strusel that's like, like that's like, uh, it got big. It's like a huge, it's like, yeah. I mean, you, if you see their pastries, you smell us. Huh. I'm going to, I have to seek out a Greek pastry shop. See, now, now I got the, now I got another woolly. Now I got like a Greek. That's it. I'm done. Go, <laughs> see, I'm lucky where I am in New Jersey. I'm surrounded by Greeks. So I couldn't, I had the cookies. Now you can get them. Within 48 hours, I could get them. If I, I mean, because I got a busy schedule, but I could find the time to get the cookies. This is interesting to me to, to go through 
the sort of regional differences because we do keep getting Italians here in the New York, New Jersey area. And we do have this refreshing oftentimes of the culture, you know, in every generation. I mean, my neighborhood got Italians into the 90s. We still had people from my grandmother's town coming into our neighborhood. That's why our religious uh, mutual aid society and our feast, it's the second oldest in the country from 1883 or 88, maybe 1888, second oldest continuous feast in the country. But if you go there today, there's still Italians that were born in Italy that run the society today and, and participate. So it's been continually refreshed. But this idea of the amber version of Italian culture, it, it speaks to how long we've been here and how many traditions sort of hold out in these little pockets. But I want to talk about the beginning of the of the real wave of immigration, because there's a dribble that builds to a wave between 1860 and 1890 and then into the 20s and the, the changes in immigration law. So, gentlemen, why don't you guys tell us a little bit about the book and its thesis and, and what this unique chapter of history that, that, that really doesn't get much coverage. Tell us a bit of the story of the book here. Well, you know, Joe started the ball rolling. I'm going to turn it over to him because that's, that's where it began. Well, uh, about 10 years ago, I wanted to learn a little bit about my family histories. And uh, we all knew in the family that my great-grandfather near Youngstown in Hubbard, Ohio, near Youngstown, he uh, built a saloon. That's what beer halls were called back in 1900. They were called saloons. So I wanted to find out when he opened it and why it closed. And the more I dug, the more I found. And five years later, I met Ben and showed him some of the data that I I discovered. And he said, what did you say at the time, Ben? Well, I, I, at the time, I was doing a lot of writing for a periodical called La Gazzetta Italiana newspaper out of Cleveland. And I'm, I'm supposed to know Italian-American history. And I had never seen the stuff that Joe was showing me. And he was sharing a lot of newspaper clips. So these weren't secondhand stories. These were accounts of, um, for me, unheard of, of, of things happening and early, much earlier than I had, I had ever heard of. My, my grandparents emigrated between 1901 and 1920, and they didn't have a lot of what Joe was showing me in their immigration history. Well, the first thing we, we found was that uh, Italians came to Youngstown much earlier than most Youngstowners even realized. Uh, the first Italians Settlers came to Youngstown early in 1873, and they came to mine coal. They weren't coming as tourists. These were men who had been contracted from Castle Garden to mine coal at a mine which had been struck by American miners. That's so important. Just to pause a moment. So many people who listen don't realize that Castle Garden was the port of immigration entry in New York before Ellis Island opened up in 1892. Right. Yes. So once, once you hear Castle Garden, you know you're with the first wave of immigration. Right. And then we found that uh, these Italians who came to Youngstown, many of them had been cheated. They'd been lied to in Italy. Of course, uh, Ben did a lot of research on the causes why Italians left Italy. They were poor. They were dispossessed. Ben, you know more about that than I do. Well, it, it's really what was talked at at the beginning of this podcast the annexation of the Mezzogiorno. It, it, it wasn't a, un, uh, a, a unification. It was an annexation. And it, it changed the social order. Northern Italy had, had lost feudalism under the French occupation. 
But um, until Garibaldi's army conquered the South, the Mezzogiorno, was, the Southern Italy, uh, was still in, in the feudal era. And the, the serfs, um, the great number of peasants, the serfs belonged to the baron's estate. Um, so they, they were in a subservient position, but there was a kind of paternalism there and the baron gave them the right to farm fields on his estate. And when the kingdom of Italy takes over the South, much of the land gets privatized, land that had been for the use of the peasants. Uh, peasants no longer have that right. And it threw people for a loop. I mean, it, it threw a whole bunch of people out of the economy, the new economy. And the reason for the privatization was to pay for the war debts of the new kingdom of Italy. There had been three wars of independence. And so the idea was, well, we're going to convert communal land or public land into, um, into real estate. And then, you know, we'll auction it off and we'll use that money to develop a modern country. The other loss for peasants with the end of feudalism uh, was the right to farm the fields of religious communities. The, the kingdom of Italy appears as a secular state, a secular kingdom, and so it suppresses religious orders. And those fields, every, every convent had acreage that became real estate. And, um, you know, there's, uh, we found an article in the Italian encyclopedia, Trecani, we found the article that said that 25% of cultivated land was privatized. Wow. And that just shook people out of the tree. They just landed and they were desperate. And not to mention, too, with the suppression of the religious orders, you know, you talk about this secular modern state. Obviously, the Kingdom of Italy is born in perpetual conflict, kind of, really. It isn't resolved until 1920. What's Lateran treaties? 1929? 29. 29. 29. Right? Yeah, 29. February 11, 29, I think. Yeah. So from, you know, from 1860 to 1870, Rome and the Papal States are independent of Italy still. And then 1870-71, the Italian army moves in and the Pope is a prisoner of the Vatican until the Lateran Accords in 1929. So while the new kingdom of Italy is born in, in sort of uh, definitional conflict with the church, you have the kingdom of two Sicilies, which is one of them. I mean, we, we joke about it a lot on the show had more Holy days uh, on the calendar than the papal States themselves. I mean, you, you couldn't ask for a more, they were religious people, religious state. Yeah. And, and so much of the, administration of that state outside of the city of Naples, or at least outside the major cities in the provinces, was administered on behalf of the kingdom by the church. So a lot of the schools were church run, a lot of the hospitals and things like that. And so when they're repressed, you also have whatever exists of a social safety net sort of disappearing at the same time. Right. So you can see why this territory in the South goes from the lowest emigration rate in Europe in 1859 to the highest by 1870. And that, that's, you know, those are numbers that don't lie. Right. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
But the thesis here in the book is that many of these people, while we understand their causes of desperation, many of these people are swindled, as the title says, coming over. Can you explain to us kind of what that means and how you guys uncovered that? Actually, when I was researching my great-grandfather's saloon, I learned that one of my great-great-uncles had come over on the steamship Aaron. And there are many newspaper articles early in 1873 that say all, if not most of the Italians on that steamship had been cheated, swindled out of their personal wealth to come over here. They were promised jobs that didn't exist. And so that's where my interest really took off. And that swindling was done by agents in Italy, Italian agents in Italy. Yeah. All the way back to the beginning of 1872, there were agents, uh, that's glorifying them. They were, they were thieves. Right. They had set up shop. They were going from small town to small town. They would find uh, men and they would say, hey, look, uh, you can get jobs in America. The streets are paved with gold. And they convinced these people to sell their belongings, to mortgage their homes, to buy steamship tickets. And that's how it all began. And see, it was so successful because the swindle took place in Italy. The victims ended up in New York. The American government had no jurisdiction over what happened in Italy. And the Italian government was very reluctant to take action. In fact, there are many contemporary Italian people of high repute who said that the Italian government was complicit in the swindle because they wanted to get rid of certain peoples. Yeah. So it was a well-oiled, successful venture that propagated through the years. And, and there were freelancers, too, who got in on, the, on these swindles. There were scalpers who would buy a block of tickets. Um, we know of one case um, where the man, um, the man bought a block of 10,000 tickets, and then he sold them to other people, who sold them to other people, who sold them to other people. We have accounts from um, the Italian press and from an Italian politician, Giovanni Florenzano, who said that it got even down to the level of the village priest and the schoolmaster who were selling these tickets. And in order to sell them, they concocted stories of untold riches in America. And they even circulated false letters. Um, the La Gazzetta Ufficiale di Molise published an article in 73, warning people about the circulation of false letters. Was, wow. There was a reaction in Italy. Uh, the Italian press reacted to the stories of fraud. And so the idea was that they were coming over with, an, with sort of an, an entire package, right? You get your, you get your transport, you get uh, a job opportunity when you come here, the, the work is lined up. And in reality, these are still valid tickets. They get on these boats, they come over, and then they're just sort of dumped in either Castle Garden, Castle Garden, right? Right. And so the U.S. authority can't do anything about it. They're not inclined to send them home because we have pretty open immigration laws at that point, right? So what are the options for these people once they get there and realize that this is a false promise, this is a swindle? Well, what happened immediately is that the folks at Castle Garden started right away to try and find jobs for them. But in the meantime, they were put up uh, as public charges at Ward's Island, which is about eight miles up, uh, I think it's the East River. Yep. That's where they were housed for months until they could find work. And they were wards of the state at that point. That's correct. Right. They were on charity. Yeah. Wow. And was there an option for them to turn around and go back or that would have required a, another full cost of passage? 
Yeah, the problem with that is they had no money. Yeah. They had mortgaged their homes. They had mortgaged all their personal belongings. They came over here with pennies in their pockets. They had no way to buy tickets to go back. Yeah. Many of these people who were, who were promoting um, these tickets, they were also promoting predatory loans. Would you explain to the audience what that entails? Well, you, if you've been thrown off your, your farm, you don't have the means to buy a ticket. Um, for many of these people, did, they did not have the means to buy a ticket. So they, they mortgaged whatever they had. They took on predatory loans. And they threw everything into this promise that they would be able to survive and do well in the United States. Um, you know, they, when you're, in, when you're in, an immigrant, you're, you're really prey to a lot of, of cheating. And so there were people that made money providing provisions, you know, they needed, some of these people didn't have shoes, so they needed shoes. They needed clothes for a cold climate. And everyone was getting in on, it was a, a, a feeding frenzy built around this, uh, these, these immigrants. They were as, as, as desperate, maybe even more desperate than the people who show up at our southern border. No one will ever screw an Italian like another Italian. Yeah, that's the truth. We never needed to find enemies on the outside. We always had plenty on the inside. <laughs> that's right. That is very true. Yeah. It's like a, a snake eating its own tail, the whole culture. John, if I can interject for a moment. Yeah. You asked about what were the terms of the predatory loans. They were actually published in uh, the New York Herald in uh, 1872, 1873, when these people first came over and they revealed the deception that they had experienced. The predatory loans were, were as follows. They would mortgage all their personal belongings to the agent, and they were required to pay that back within 12 months or lose everything. That was the gist of it. And the loan itself was, uh, I believe that the rate was about 15%. Yes, yes. Wow. And that was all printed in the newspaper. And their families are obviously still there, and so they're, they're still beholden to these predatory loaners. And hearing these kind of terms this is when it becomes even more glaring of a failure on the part of the Italian state to do something about it. Because, you know, part of the book explains the really international relations between the U.S. and the Italian foreign ministry and the back and forth that goes on. Can you kind of go into the U.S. reaction, obviously, is to take these men up to Ward's Island, like you say, hopefully get them some work. But how does the U.S. then reach out to the Italian government and uh, where is the failure there on the Italian government's part? What's the reaction? I know they don't do anything, but uh, how did they demure from their responsibility here? Well, Secretary of State Hamilton Fish uh, cabled Italy and gave instructions and asked that measures be taken. That was the extent of his power. He could do no more. There was a consul general in New York City for Italy. His name was Ferdinand de Luca. And it's a funny thing with him because he was accused for years of having benefited from the importation of child musicians hmm. starting in the late 1860s. His fortunes, this is uh, covered in an article in the Boston Pilot from 1873. DeLuca amassed a fortune in the late 1860s up to about 1873 that he couldn't have gotten from his pay. He was paid a pittance from the Italian government. He actually had to borrow money to survive. And then as the number of Italian child musicians rose in New York City, DeLuca's fortune rose, he was able to live in one of the most fashionable places in the city by 1873. Wow. This was the consul general of Italy in New York City. This was one of our contacts 
with Italy. And, and again, it's never been proven, so I can't say that he was guilty, but this shows you the sorts of things that were going on. Well, the consulate was just a few doors down from the, the national line, which, which was the passenger ship line that had, a, had an incredible record of fraud. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Explain that to us. How, how is the shipping company involved here? Well, the head of the ship of the national line was uh, called in to testify in 1890 about the sorts of things that were going on at that time. But in the 1870s, here's what was going on actually in 1872. If you look at the, at the shipping manifest, and I spent I don't know how many weeks looking at every stinking ship manifest for the year 1872, I counted the number of Italians on each ship. It turns out that of all the Italians who came to America in 1872, 70% were brought by the National Line. Wow. And the National Line is the company that all of the swindled Italians came over on in November and December and January of 1872-1873. Again, you can't you we can't prove that there was collusion between the head of the National Line that he was involved but it, it seems to be very clear that there was something going on there. And these the National Line is not an Italian shipping company, obviously. No. No, they're based in England. They're based in England. Correct. Are there other immigrants being swindled? Is this a global scheme or is it localized just to Italy? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I can't answer that, Ben. I don't, I don't think that it was to the degree, if, if it went on, that it was with the Italians, because uh, I don't recall reading much about that. There were occasional swindles, certainly. Yeah. In the 1860s, there were groups from Scotland who were brought over here on the same sort of false promises, but never to the degree that the Italians suffered. Yeah, we, we counted up, there are at least 11 arrivals in new york city of italians ship arrivals ship arrivals right having been swindled and the, the, the there was a discussion in the italian parliament about this and the, um, giovanni florenzano comes out with his book della immigrazione italiana in america and he just goes on and on about all this fraud i don't know how popular the book became in italy but the language in it uh, he was a politician later, but in 74, he came out talking about um, the fact that these, these recruiters, these shipping lines and their sub-agents, they were hunting men in Italy like Americans hunt down wild beasts in Kansas. I mean, it was very, very strong. Wow. I can share the quote with you in, in Italian, but it was really basically like the crows eating the carrion. He uses that image in, in, in his description. The discussion, yeah, he brings that to the Italian parliament. He doesn't get much, uh, much response. And is this localized to the south, or is this all over Italy that this is going on? It was all the way from top to the toe. Wow. All the way, and even into Sicily. Wow. There are newspaper articles, contemporary articles from 1872 and 1873, where they interview some of these Italians. And as a matter of fact, there are affidavits before the House of Representatives, and some of these Italians tell where they are from. So we know the villages, and we don't know the villages where they were all from, but we have enough names to see that the villages stretched all the way up from near the Alps, all the way down into, into Sicily, and everywhere in between. So it was countrywide. It's amazing to think in an era of, let's say, less than ideal communicative technologies, you could have a nationally spread uh, 
I guess the right word is collusion because it's all coming on one liner, right? Like you say, the, the national line is somehow yes. involved yes. here. So it's not, it's not necessarily like a, a trend and it, and it lasts for a few months between the turn from 1872 and 1873. What stops this finally? Uh, that's a good question. It really never did stop. I think uh, what happened was it slowed down when the Italian government, they were forced to, to act. Even if they were reluctant to do so, there was so much international press. You got to remember that if you look at the newspapers between November and January of 1873, every other newspaper story was about this crisis. Wow. And it was not just in this country. There were publications in England, in Ireland. There was uh, obviously the press of Italy. Every newspaper in Italy was covering this. They were all up in arms about it. So the Italian government had to do something. They very quickly, in January of 1873, instituted some uh, measures that apparently did slow and bring the crisis to a halt. But within about five months, after things had settled down, it began again on a, on a low, uh, sort of under-the-table stream, and it just took off from there again. That's like any good Italian scam. You cut one head and two more grow back in a different way, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Right. How many men in total were brought over in this way, at least in the research you guys did in this period? In the period of what we call the swindle, which is November, middle November until uh, the first week of January, there were 2,800 people, mostly men, wow. who, who were brought over on those national line ships. And according to the press, according to congressional affidavits, many, if not all, had been swindled. And do we know whether or not they ended up staying here? Do we, have we been able to find any of the descendants uh, that are still here? I mean, what an interesting history to be a part of. Well, you're talking to one of the descendants right now. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I have, I have uh, cousins who are direct descendants of uh, some of the people on the steamship Aaron. Wow, that's incredible. That is really amazing. This period is so important to look at because the scandal and the numbers of Italians who came and the fact that many of them were used as strike breakers, they're, they're, there's a list. That happened in Jersey City. Yeah. Very uh, early on, like the 1870s. Yes. 30, at least 30 strikes where Italians were employed as strike breakers. Wow. And once that starts to happen, your ordinary person is, trying to, is starting to look at Italians with some anxiety. Um, Prior to this period of this window, um, prior to the Civil War, let's say, Italians were known as people of, um, of great skill, professionals. You know, you have Brumidi and the, the frescoes in the dome at the Capitol. You have Jefferson who hires dozens of Italian musicians to live in the United States and write music for the army. You have the, the, the image of the Italian prior to the Civil War was of someone from a very educated background, someone who was bringing the values of the Italian Renaissance to the United States, Italian, um, you know, the, the ideas of um, political liberty. There were exiles here who came, lived for a while. With all these scandals and with the Italians used as pauper labor, I mean, they get, the Italians get placed into this category of labor, and you can hear the term quite often in the, in the reports in Congress of pauper labor, P-A-U-P-E-R, with the Chinese and with African-Americans. This is a subclass of labor that's used against the rest of the native-born laborers in the United States. 
And that this becomes fodder for um, uh, immigration restriction. Do you know who brokered the Italians being sent in to break the strike? I guess it was the Scranton, whatever Stephanie would know, the railroad that came from Scranton, Liriac, was that Erie Lackawanna? That came from Scranton and from... Um, yeah, the, it was the Delaware Lackawanna. It was Delaware Lackawanna. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, the Irish were fighting to unionize. Oh, yeah. The Italians were sent in. And do you know who negotiated the peace? Who? Father Gennaro Di Concilio, the author of the Baltimore Catechism. Oh. The author of the Baltimore Catechism was born in Naples in 1837. He had gone to a missionary seminary. When the Diocese of Newark was formed in, I think, 1853, they needed a theologian. So they sent to the missionary seminary in Genoa where he was. He was sent to Newark. At the time of the Plenary Council of Baltimore, he was the most educated theologian in the United States. So when they decided they wanted to create a national catechism, they asked who's the best trained theologian in the country, and they got Gennaro Di Concilio to come from um, Seton Hall at the time and to go down to write the Baltimore Catechism. But he had been the pastor of St. Michael's in Jersey City. And because he was a Neapolitan by birth and because he had been pastor for an Irish parish, they thought he was the one guy that both sides could trust. Mm. And he went to the, the Italians, a lot of them were from Salerno, and said to them, you're really being manipulated here to be strike busters and the whole nine yards. But, oh, that's wow. What a story. It, it does make you wonder, you know, you talk about the lasting impact on people like you, Joe, who have family that are descended from this. But what is the lasting impact on our community as a whole, right? There's somewhere around 18 and a half million self-identified Italian-Americans today. And then if you extrapolate out for demography, there's probably, you know, 20 to 25 million people with some Italian ancestry in the country. And you wonder if at the earliest root of our experience here, as we're beginning to see this wave, you wonder if this is the kind of stuff that laid the foundation for what was oftentimes a very difficult social experience for the the mass of the community. I mean, I think about later on in, in history, in the 1920s, the founding of the Italian Welfare League, a group of women that we work with even today. They just celebrated their 100th anniversary last year. You know, they, they were an organization of Italian-American women who would go down to Ellis Island at that point and uh, have food waiting and, and help arrange jobs and housing and things like that. You know, you, you think of the early period, early immigration and Little Italy in these bustling neighborhoods, but someone had to come first to establish them. And, and you wonder sometimes when you th- we forget about that period, those first kind of pioneering immigrants who were not the prominent artists like Bermidi or the musicians and things like that, but who were really the, the simple peasants that came over in cases like this, how much their experience lays the groundwork for the rest of us. And, and you know, these strike-breaking laborers, these pauper laborers coming over, are, are they and their experience in some ways behind the difficulty that many Italians had finding acceptance and finding work. You think about the, you know, Italians need not apply and all of these kind of things. Uh, I wonder if these 2000 some odd men and women hadn't been swindled over, might there have been like the ripples in a pond, a little bit of a different experience for the rest of us. That's a good thought. And you're probably right about that. One thing I do want to say, Ben was talking about the strike breaking. When we trace the Italians who came to Youngstown in our first part of the research. There are newspaper articles that say that they had no idea what they were getting into. 
Right. right. First of all, they were illiterate in their own country, let alone they couldn't speak English. Yeah. They were contracted at Castle Garden. The guy from Youngstown said, come and work for me. There was an interpreter who told them that. You come work for this fellow. They get on a train, they go 400 miles. They only knew when they got there that they were being employed as strike breakers. They had no idea otherwise. In fact, two years after they arrived, they were still mining coal. There was another strike and uh, one of the Youngstown coal kings came to those same Italians and said, uh, can you come work in my mine? And they said, no. They said, we did that once without knowing what we were doing. We will not do that again. Wow. So they, they had no intention to be strike breakers. They had no intention to live a life like that. Yeah, it, but that, that tag lasted for such a long time. If you know the movie Mate One, in the movie Mate One, there's a threat that the Italians in West Virginia in the 1920s are going to be used as strike breakers. Wow. In my own family history, I, my, my grandfather told me when he came from Italy in 1901 to Youngstown, he got a job in a foundry. And he told me that they ha he had to leave the foundry because he's quote unquote, we fought them with shovels. Wow. And that's the only information I have. I mean, I should have asked him more questions, but now knowing this history, I can imagine what was behind some of that violence. It's interesting to think, you know, we talk about the crisis of immigration today in this country, and uh, you can use the term crisis from multiple points of view, right? There are those who believe that immigration in itself causes a crisis and causes danger. There are those who believe that the resistance immigration is a crisis. There are those that believe the way it's being handled is a crisis. But it, needless to say, we have issues with our immigration system not being up to par for a 21st century nation with 21st century technology and other countries doing it in a far more organized and better way. But this is still the country that people dream about, right? For so many myriad reasons. And I often find it interesting because I think we have, as Pat always says, a very rose-colored view of our Italian-American history. And I always am fascinated by interacting with Italians who are virulently anti-immigration because it cuts off our current experience, which is in many ways such a blessed one, from roots like this and roots like predatory and exploitative immigration. And we see those same trends today in other communities. And, and I think knowing our history makes it a lot harder not to be empathetic, if that makes sense. Right, right. right. You know? And this is the history that does need to be known. And I think a lot of Italian Americans sort of feel like, you know, our ancestors got on a boat and they waved goodbye to their families and they came off at Ellis Island. And yeah, but I think the point, John, that was so much the story for the later group. It's the earliest group that really got kicked around. Yeah. It's, it's that crowd that came in the 1870s that really got taken. For, I mean, yes, there was exploitation of Italians in every group that came, but it was the real, I mean, it was nothing. The later groups did not get the beat up that those first people did. I think you can say, though, in the 1920s, the, the racial attitudes toward Italians, thanks to eugenics, I think that reached a fever pitch. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you read some of the uh, discussions in which Johnson, Johnson was the great promoter of the 1924 partial ban on immigration from Southern and, and Eastern Europe. You know, he uses... There are terms like, you know, like the degraded races of, of, of Europe. We were one of the degraded races of Europe. 
we were a danger to the United States population because of our low intelligence, according to him and the people behind him. So, I, I, you know, I would say, uh, Patrick, that the 1920s, they were their own hell. Yeah, but it was a different, but you already had Italian-American organizations. We had a base. That's true. And we also had what I called the Jimmy Durante generation because those people in the 1870s started to have kids. So in the 1880s, we have our first generation of Italian-Americans, kids born in the United States who are Americans speaking English, who were parents from Italy. So we had our first generation of advocates. They were the World War I generation a little bit before. But those guys who came in the 1870s, yeah. the, even the, the Catholic Church was even not even a, an established entity in this country. Yeah, I mean, because no- the Irish were up their own creek. I mean, I have a very strong personal fascination with those people because I can imagine you're in the south of Italy, you know, um, someone says to me, they, when they finally figured out that the whole Garibaldi promise was a scam, they had to make a decision. Do we pack up and go or do we ride this out? And they've been riding it out for about 10 or 13 years. It was only getting worse. And somebody had to say, I'm going to pack up and get out of here. Maybe things are better in America. And it wasn't like they had the cousin over, you know, the, the next generation, the group that comes in in 1900 or 1895 or, or 1920, they already had the family members of the Byzans who were here who could help them in chain migration. My sympathy always goes to that first guy. I wish I knew who I, I, I'm fascinated to find out who was the first Southern Italian who gets off one of these boats. Yeah, I can almost answer that. Uh, are you familiar with Joe Petrosino, the uh, New York detective? Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. He's from Padula. Yes. The Val di Diana. I've been I know his I know his cousin. I've actually been to his museum multiple times. Wow. Joe was one of the first Italians off the first ship that was known to be swindled. Wow. Really? November 1872. He was 11 years old. Yeah. Wow. And you think about like you, you bring up Joe Petrosino, which is an episode I, I still want us to do because a couple of great books have been written about him. Uh, and he's a fascinating character and his family is still here. I mean, there's, there's a, currently a Joe Petrosino on the NYPD who's a, a descendant of his. Uh, but I think to Pat's point, it's guys like Joe Petrosino as he builds his career in the latter part of the 1800s and early 1900s or Fiorella LaGuardia, who becomes an advocate and is doing work on Ellis Island. We start to have these early community leaders who are getting involved and people are coming over to established ethnic enclaves. But I, I, I'm with Pat in the sympathy that I have for those who come off and there is no little Italy to go to. And, uh, you know, everything is a mystery. There's no press. There's yeah. no Italian press. Nothing. Nothing. There's no nationality church, no Italian lawyers. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You're just a, a leaf in the wind in this great, vast country. We made a huge mistake as a community that we did not interview that crowd when they were still around in the 1940s, yeah, in the late 30s into the early 50s. I, I don't know of any accounts. I mean, you guys are the experts in this. Do you know of any real detailed accounts of what was going on in these communities at that time? I have never run across anything like that. And I, I can only guess it's because they, the Italians at that time were, uh, again, they were illiterate. They were poor. Yeah, correct, they were just 100%. scraping to get by. And they had no friends. As you said, in this country, they had many enemies. People didn't want them here, by and large. So even if they had something to say, who would listen? Yeah, it's really powerful to think about. And, and, it, and it, it makes me very glad 
that you guys took the time to write this book, to get this out there. I'm very, very happy that, uh, like I say, my Amazon algorithm worked and it popped up on my feed and <laughs> yeah. I was able to get it uh, pre-ordered. So I was able to get it. It was actually published August 16th, so the day before my birthday, which is uh, really special. So it's a birthday gift to myself. And Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, and a very enjoyable one at that. And I hope everybody out there in the audience will follow the link on our show page to the book and go out and get a copy. Go buy the book. Yeah. <laughs> Some of you are loaded and you have your confirmation money still in the envelopes <laughs> to your mattress. <laughs> Open up the wallet. The mods will fly out, but they'll be free. They can go find other mods. Take your money. Buy the book. Buy the book for your aunt, buy the book for your uncle, buy the book for your cousin, buy the book for the relative that never reads. If we don't support these projects with our checkbooks, if we don't give people the means to make these economically feasible, we will never grow as a community in an intellectual sense. We have to support the authors who put up so much money up front, who if they break even on these books, they're lucky and they know that. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Exactly. It's a passion and a labor of love. Read these books so you can take these knowledge and pass on to other people and buy the book, buy the book, buy the book, buy a lot of them. Amen. 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 Amen to yes. that. Yes. You're absolutely right. Can they come back and we could have a cookie episode? <laughs> yes. We I can show you pictures. Yeah, but that's mean. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm going to look and then I'm going to want it. Then you're going to tell me, well, it's only made in a bakery in Youngstown. <laughs> That's what's going to come out. Well, you know, you can only get this. We got to go out to Youngstown. No, no, no. These these cookies come from people's kitchens. Yeah, that's true. No one buys cookies in a bakery in Youngstown for a wedding. For a, a wedding. It comes from the kitchen. We should do an episode. We should do a greetings from Italian America of an Italian wedding in Youngstown, John. Yeah, even if we fake the wedding just to get the cookies. I mean, why not? <laughs> it's worth We'll just have a big cookie fest. You know, we'll cover the boom, boom, yeah, so Everybody, Everybody gets paid. We are sick people. Let's fake the wedding to get the cookies. <laughs> normal, normal people don't say these things. <laughs> it's probably true. But that's why we're here. And that's why these two gentlemen are here. And uh, it's a great labor of love and one that I have very much enjoyed adding to my personal collection and my library. And I hope everybody else out there does too. So, guys, thanks again for being on. And, yeah, we look forward to seeing you out in Youngstown. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great being with you. It's been great having you on. And uh, I'm hoping we, we get to meet in person real soon. To everybody out there, we hope you've enjoyed. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. See that you're born in Italy.